Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I am a sinner saved by grace. That is the essential theological underpinning of pretty much everything we do here at GCA. We believe that human beings are sinners, and as a result, the only way they can be saved is if God is gracious to them. And that's also what we're going to start talking about this morning. One of the distinctives of GCA, what separates us from so many other churches, there are lots of churches in our town and in most of the towns in America. There are lots of choices for you when you get up on a Sunday morning, plenty of places you could go. And what's the difference between them? Why are there so many different churches? Why is there not, as there was in the New Testament, why is there not one primary church in any city? In Smyrna alone, you can go right up the street, just two, three blocks right here, and you're with the Methodists. And you can go beyond that, and you're with the quasi-Baptists. I say quasi-Baptists because they changed their name from Smyrna First Baptist to LifePoint so that you don't really know if they're really Baptist, but anyway. And then you can just go just a bit further from them, and you can find Crossroads Baptist, which is the more conservative portion of the group that became LifePoint. So why are there, just in these couple of blocks, so many churches? What's the difference? What are the distinctions? If you go up here to Old Nashville Highway and you turn left and you go under Nissan Boulevard, uh, you can find our local Catholic church. We have all these various different churches. Now, the Baptist church is the most common church here in the South, but the Baptist church is divided up. You've got Reformed Baptist. On the far other end of the spectrum, you've got independent and free will Baptist, and you've got pretty much everything in between. Why? And what makes us different? Why would you come here instead of going to one of those various churches that are available? Certainly there may be one that's closer to your house than coming all the way to GCA. Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What is distinctive about GCA and the theology that we hold, and where does that theology come from? Now, you know that here at GCA, we hold to what are called the doctrines of grace. My friend Don Tyndall, whenever I say doctrines of grace, will correct me and say, no, there's only one. It is the doctrine of grace. It's the teaching about grace, even though it has several different points. So it was 2001, June of 2001, when we first occupied this building and became a public church. 
hung a banner on the garage door out there because we didn't even have a sign yet. But we became a public church. In 2002, I preached through what are known as the doctrines of grace without really explaining where they came from, but at least explain them as the theological distinctives that GCA is founded on. And that was 2002. It's been 17 years since we systematically went through the doctrines of grace. So that's what we're going to do next, now that we have kind of established a bit of the history of the Bible, what the Bible is, why we believe the Bible, what the evidences of the Bible are, The next thing we're going to do is talk about the theological underpinnings of GCA as a church and the underpinnings of the doctrines of grace, why we believe them, and even what they are. How did they come to be historically? The doctrines of grace did not just pop into being one day and then a bunch of churches went, yeah, okay, we'll go with that. There's actually history that leads to the doctrines of grace. So this morning we're going to talk a little bit of the history of the church, and I know that potentially talking history can become a little boring. So I am going to try to keep it interesting, but if any of you doze off while I'm doing it, I will just take it personally and assume that I have just become that boring. But we need to know our church history. How many of you grew up in the church? Yes, that's the vast majority of you have grown up in the church. How many of you who were raised in the church ever had church history taught to you in a way that you could understand why your particular church believed the things it did? How many of you were ever taught that? A couple. Okay, well, then that's why we're going to look at it, because it just does seem to be the case that most church-going people don't really know the history of how they got to where they are. What is the difference between these denominations? At one point, back in the early days, there was, as I mentioned, a church, primary church in each of the cities Letters of the New Testament were written to those various churches in those various cities. And those churches, to a great degree, all agreed on the same thing because they were established on the basis of the theology of Paul and the letters that they were receiving from Paul. And then the early church fathers wrote from those letters, extrapolated on those letters, quoted from those letters. And so there was a great deal of unanimity in the early church. And then as men continued to lay their hands on that original theology, it started becoming more separated, more opinion was added to it, more thought and logic was added to it. For instance, the first 300 years of the church, really, as you watch the development of Theology, as you read the church fathers, you see that the primary thing they were discussing and arguing about was the nature and character of Christ. Was he all God? Was he all man? Was he a combination of the two? How did that work? 100% man, 100% God? Does that make him 200% of something? Or is he 100% God man? And that would make him the utterly unique singular son of God. Well, that became 
the theological argument for the first few hundred years of the church. As a consequence, they didn't really develop anything in what we would call the doctrines of grace category. The emphasis was more on Christ, his nature, his character, and not quite so much on the Pauline theology of how people are saved through grace. 354 to 430 were the years of a fellow named Augustine, or you can pronounce his name Augustine. Augustine was the man who kind of reintroduced into the public, collective, religious mindset and theology. He reintroduced the knowledge that the Bible emphasizes man's fallen state. Because that really is where the Bible starts in our relationship with God. All the other theology of grace starts there. It starts with mankind is actually fallen. We use the phrase depraved, that human beings are so deep into their sin that there's no way that they, even if they tried really hard to do well, there's no way that they could ever be good enough to attain the righteousness, the holiness of God. And so that is the beginning, that is the groundwork on which all the other doctrines of grace are built And Augustine recognized that. He understood that what the Bible emphasized, the biblical anthropology, was that human beings were inherently sinful. Now, when we talk about the church in the early days, the first couple of hundred years of the church, when I said they were all kind of in unity based on the Pauline teaching as human beings started to develop more and more theology, that early church collectively can be called the Catholic Church with a small c. Catholic just means the universal, the united church. By the time Augustine comes on the scene, the church in Rome has begun acquiring not only political authority and political power as Rome was ruling the whole Middle East and Europe at that point. So that church became more ecclesiastically powerful as well and started deciding and declaring theology in the form of edicts. In other words, to be a Christian, you have to believe this because this is dogmatically what we preach. We are, after all, the church at Rome. Eventually, the church at Rome took on the name the Catholic Church, meaning we are the universal church that has its foundation and its teaching and its authority from Rome. So it becomes the Roman Catholic Church. Over the course of years, the Roman Catholic Church began creating its own theology and introducing new theology that was extra-biblical, to say the least, sub-biblical, to say the most, um, heretical, to be honest. By the time Augustine was on the scene, he was part of the Roman church, 
and there were all kinds of political rumblings going on in North Africa. And so it was Augustine's job to kind of bring the church together again, to bring the church into a united way of thinking again. Augustine then systemized a biblical theology that he believed was the biblical theology. He started with man being sinful. Now, I will say, I'll tell you this, for any of you who decide you're going to go back and read Augustine or Augustine, I'm just going to keep saying it back and forth, whichever one you prefer. But if you go back and you read him, you will find that he is, in many ways, the thinker, the theologue, who developed much of the theology that supports, that still to this very day continues to support the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church points at Augustine as one of their theological founders. Augustine also developed the theology of grace. And so the comment has been made through the years that when you look at Augustine, you have to understand that it was his theology that sort of triumphs over his ecclesiology. His ecclesiology is Roman Catholic. And yet we look back and credit him as being the first developer of some of the things we still believe. You see the difference? I won't go into at this point some of the things that Augustine did to help develop the Roman Catholic Church, just know that there was, as there was more persecution against the church, there were people who abandoned their faith, or at very least publicly abandoned it, in order not to lose their lives. And then after the persecution of the church in North Africa ceased, then some of those bishops, some of those priests, who had previously denied the faith to save their own skin, were all of a sudden, hey, we're in again. Now that the persecution has stopped, we're still priests, we're still good to go, right? Well, that caused a controversy. They were called the traditors, the the traitors to the faith. So then, since they were traitors to the faith, should they actually be allowed to come back and start doing the rights of the church again? Should they be allowed to baptize? Should they be allowed to ordain? Should they be allowed to give the communion wafers? Should they be allowed to continue in the priesthood? Well, that was an enormous controversy that was ultimately settled by the thinking of Augustine. Augustine had to develop the idea of... um, Ex opera operato, or is the validness of a particular act, like let's say ordaining someone, or serving the mass, is the validness of the mass or the validness of a baptism, is that determined by the validness of the priest, or is it determined by the validness of the act itself? Well, the Catholic Church went with it's the act itself that makes it valid rather than the validity of the person doing it. Okay, now, has that had a ripple effect in the Catholic Church? Well, yes, it has, which is why there are still priests in the Catholic Church 
who were guilty of a great many things that, that we just as a society would object to, but also biblically would object to, and yet those same priests just get moved to another parish and just continue doing the same action because the action is what gives the action validity, not the person doing the action. So even though he settled this argument all those years ago, he had that ripple effect all the way through these years. That's why the Catholic Church will still point back to Augustine and says, he gives us some validity. But it was also Augustine who systematized a biblical theology to refute the teaching of a guy named Pelagius. Okay, let's talk just in very broad terms about what Pelagian theology was. He was a British-born Roman ascetic who opposed the idea, the biblical idea of predestination. And instead, he asserted a version of the doctrine of free will, the idea that human beings could decide of themselves to be saved. Historically, he leaves Rome permanently around 411. He disappears from the historic record completely around 418. Nobody really knows what happened to him. Perhaps he was the only person raptured at that moment. We don't know. He just, he just, he just disappears from the record. Now, the teaching of Pelagius was that every human being is born essentially neutral. You're not sinful. You're not holy. You haven't done anything yet. And since you haven't done anything yet, you're neutral. And then he said that every man has the potential to make himself righteous. And so you are a sinner if you choose to sin. But you have the capability by your own free will to decide, to determine, to make yourself righteous. He also taught that the crucifixion of Christ was his personal sacrifice, but that it was not imputed to other people. You didn't achieve righteousness by Christ's imputed righteousness to you. Rather, you achieved your righteousness through your own works, through your own willfulness, through your own ability. So you've got on one hand Augustine saying human beings are born depraved. And then you've got Pelagius coming along and saying human beings are born neutral and have the ability to make themselves holy. Augustine would say no because you're born depraved. You don't have the ability to make yourself righteous or holy. And there you go. You've got one of the big first theological splits in church history. And the arguing begins. That argument about whether human beings are born depraved and incapable and sinful versus whether they're born pretty good. And, you know, they can choose of their own free will to make themselves better. And if they just work hard enough, they can make themselves good. Have you ever heard that theology? It's very prevalent these days. It's in the vast majority of churches. The vast majority of churches will say to you, you know, you're, you're okay, you're pretty good. It's just that every once in a while you slip up. Every once in a while you might sin, you might kind of stub your toe a little bit, but you have the ability to get yourself up, dust yourself off, and continue on in your life, and God will accept you on the basis of your earned righteousness. You do it. 
That certainly is the Catholic teaching these days. Now, the Catholic Church still uses the terminology of grace. But when they use the terminology of grace, they mean something different than we mean when we say grace. Because they say that the grace of God and the Holy Spirit of God empowers you to then be good enough that God will accept you. We say, no, you're born sinful, you're born depraved. You don't have the ability to be holy enough that God would accept you. Therefore, it has to be a matter of his grace, his unmerited favor, doing for you everything you cannot do for yourself. So even though you will hear various different churches use the language of grace, you have to listen to how they use that language to understand whether they mean by it the same thing that the Bible means by it. When the Bible says the word grace, the Bible is extending unmerited kindness and favor to people who are incapable of satisfying God. So if you listen carefully and somebody says, the grace of God will give you the ability to be so good that God accepts you, well, that's not biblical, but it's subtle. You got to pay attention. You got to listen to understand those differences. Okay, so Pelagius was accused by Augustine and others of denying the need for divine or godly aid in performing good works because Pelagius believed that you were neutral to begin with and that you could do it. You can do it. You can do it. (laughs) Just get busy. Do it. Oh, I grew up on that theology. I grew up in the Lutheran church telling me, you can do it. Just do it. Get better. Do better. I left the Lutheran church when I realized I couldn't do any better. I realized I was doing the best I could, and obviously that was not good enough. So Augustine accused Pelagius of denying the need for divine aid when you perform good works. In fact, Augustine and his fellows understood Pelagius to have said that the only grace that was necessary was the declaration of the law to people. In other words, if you just simply told people what God expected of them, that was a gracious act in your telling them, and then they had the ability to do it. If they wanted to. If they wanted to bad enough, they had the intrinsic, inherent, internal ability to do it. Pelagius believed that human beings were not wounded by Adam's sin and that they were perfectly able to fulfill the law without the Holy Spirit or divine aid. And Pelagius denied Augustine's theory of original sin, sin starting at Adam and then imputed to all mankind. Pelagius, therefore, was declared a heretic at the Council of Carthage in 418. And yet, as I described some of the Pelagian theology to you, didn't it sound really familiar to you? Oh, yes. Because it's taught still. It's, it's still widely broadcast in many churches. People are still teaching 
Pelagianism, every time that a person says, you're capable, you can do it. Just go please God by your effort and by your free will. They are hearkening back to the theology of Pelagian, who, as I want to emphasize once again, the church in 418 at the Council of Carthage said, declared, that his teaching was heretical, anti-biblical, not to be followed. But that, of course, doesn't stop human beings. Why is Pelagian theology so attractive? Because it appeals to you. It appeals to your sense of well-being and capability. It puts you at the center of your religious universe. Yeah, it's all pride. It's all ego. And it works for people because people love themselves. And then when they hear the theology of, well, you're so good that you can just please God. And then God will love you based on you. Well, that appeals to human beings who love themselves anyway. Hey, great, I love me, and God will love me because of how I am. That works for me. And so that appeals to the human ego, to human pride, and still to this day is taught. So as a consequence, Augustine developed a systematic theology that ran just the opposite of everything that Pelagius had taught. He taught, number one, that the entire human race fell in Adam. Now, we find that in the Bible. We find that the whole human race is held guilty of Adam's sin. Adam's sin is imputed to everybody. In other words, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's our character. That's our nature. Number two, that all men by nature, are depraved and spiritually dead. Okay, well, that is what we believe. That is the biblical anthropology. And then number three, that the will, the human will, is free to sin, but not free to do good toward God. Okay, now as we go through the next few weeks talking about these doctrines of grace, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But your capability is what limits your ability. In other words, the example that I've used so many times, I got to pick on somebody. I'm going to pick on Lee just because he's right there and I saw him. Yeah. Lee, there is a graveyard right up the street. If you run up there and yell at everybody in the graveyard to jump up and do jumping jacks, what's the likelihood that you're going to be able to talk them into it? Zero. Zero likelihood. And why would that be? They're dead. They're dead, exactly, because they're dead. And you could hear in his answer the unspoken, duh. Yeah, they are dead. Well, the language of the Bible is that human beings are dead in their trespasses and sins. And so all human beings can do, their only capability is to sin. That's all you can do because you're sinful by nature. Your nature is limited to that sinful capability. And so you're not free By your own will, your own determination, your own decision, you're not free to go do things that would satisfy or obligate God. 
Number four, Augustine taught that Christ suffered as a substitute for a particular group of people. We will get into this deeper in the weeks to come as we talk about what election is and biblically how it's described. God elects whom he will. This is his fifth point. That God elects whom he will irrespective of merit. In other words, if all human beings are sinful and depraved, what could God see in somebody that would make him go, oh yeah, well, I have to save him because he's just so good. He's just acting so well. He is exercising his own free will. He has decided that he's going to be saved and therefore I'm obligated. I have to save him. Instead, God chooses to elect and save people and it can't be based on anything within them. So he elects irrespective of merit. And number six, that saving grace is efficaciously applied to those chosen elect individuals by the Holy Spirit. As we go through the doctrines of grace, when we get to the perseverance of the saints, we'll drill down more on that last point. So Augustine, now you've got to understand, historically, the church was not independent of the government the way that we are here in America right now in the 21st century. When I say independent of the government, what I mean is that the church and the government are two different entities, so much so that we even talk about the separation of church and state, and the state doesn't even tax the church so that there is a division between church and state because the ability to tax is the ability to control. And so there is a separation of church and state, but in Augustine's day, the Church of Rome in particular was very intertwined with the state. It was, in fact, the state church. And in fact, when children were born, the certificate of birth and the certificate of their entrance into the church was the same thing. That's why they baptized infants early on. They were baptizing them right into the church. So in that environment, Augustine couldn't just develop theology and then take it to the church and say, look, here's what Pelagius has said, but here's what I say contrary to him. Instead, he has to have his teaching accepted by the church and the state. The church has to give credence to it because, after all, it is then going to influence the population. So Augustine was actually successful in securing the acceptance of his teaching by the early church. However, as the Roman Catholic Church has continued to grow in greater prominence and as they have introduced new thoughts, new ideas, the church promoted a reliance on increased superstition, and increased scriptural ignorance. Now, I understand that that's a really controversial statement. But look, my last name's McClarty. My family, Irish Catholic. My grandfather died a good Catholic. My aunt died a Catholic. As a child, it was an act of rebellion when my father said, We are not going to be Catholic. We're going to be Lutheran. 
which is just Catholic light. <laughs> just slightly different from the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has introduced all kinds of things like the idea that Mary is co-redemptrix, that Mary is, is a co-mediatrix, that she can mediate between you and God. Okay, you don't find that in the Bible anywhere. You find just the opposite of that in the Bible. So they have introduced all kinds of superstition. That's the only thing you can call it because it's not Bible and it's not theology. It's just stuff that they have invented and then imposed on people's conscience And the reason that they were able to impose it on people's conscience is because they keep people scripturally ignorant. And part of the way they do that is through the teaching magisterium. They say that the Bible is only one part of your Christian education, but the history and tradition of the church is equal with the Bible. And the Pope, especially when he's speaking from the throne of Peter, when he's speaking ex cathedra, that is also supposed to have the same amount of weight on your conscience that the Bible has. They call that the teaching magisterium of the church. So the tradition of the church, the teaching magisterium, and the Bible are all three co-equal parts of your education within Roman Catholicism. I know up until the mid-1960s, 1970s, it's still common in many Roman Catholic churches. They still do the Mass in Latin. Okay, how many of you speak Latin? Okay, so if you go into a Roman Catholic church and they hold the whole Mass in Latin, do you have any idea what they're saying? No, they're just up there saying it. They're just up there talking away. And so you become the audience. You just watch the priest do all the stuff, but you're not participant in it outside of taking the wafer. And really, the Catholic Church has traded on that ability to keep people biblically ignorant. The Pope gained political and ecclesiastical power, and eventually most of Europe fell under Rome's dominion. Pope, by the way, just means Papa. It just means Holy Father. That's why they call him that. So he is the father of the Roman Catholic Church, and he believes the father of all Christians everywhere. And they believe that unless you are adhering to the Roman Catholic Church, you cannot be saved any other way. So my point is, The people, especially during the Middle Ages, 500 to about 1500 AD, uh, for the most part, people just couldn't read. And so they were reliant on the priest to tell them what Christianity was. And the church took full advantage of that. Since you can't read the Bible, then our tradition and our teaching magisterium is going to be imposed on your conscience So that you start believing things that aren't in the Bible, but you don't know it's not in the Bible because you can't read your Bible. So trust me, I'm going to tell you that this is the way God wants things, even though you have no way of checking it. As a consequence, the Pope, which by the way, there's no popes in the Bible. Peter was not the first Pope, get that right, even though the Roman Catholic Church will tell you that's the way it works. The Pope continued to gain not just ecclesiastical power, But he had a lot of political power, 
and eventually most of Europe fell under Rome's dominion. So the scriptures are withheld from the common people. The worship service is conducted in Latin, which was a language that nobody but the clergy understood to begin with. And it was in that situation, that morass, that Martin Luther turns up. Martin Luther was alive from 1483 to 1546. Originally, he was an Augustinian monk. Now, when you know that, now when you read that Augustinian monk, you know that harkens back to Augustine. Now you know who Augustine is. And you understand what the influence of Augustinianism was on Martin Luther. He led the German Reformation of the Church. In fact, we usually end up giving him credit for starting what we call the Reformation. Now, originally, the Reformation of the Church was intended to reform the Catholic Church. Martin Luther actually believed that if he just went to Rome and showed the folks there, showed the bishops and the pope there the error of their ways, they would all collectively say, oh, thank you, Martin, we have clearly erred, except they'd say it in German, and then, and then they would improve, and then they would clean up their act. Well, he instead kind of found himself in front of a steamroller. And so he started the Reformation, though he wasn't trying to start the Protestant Reformation, when he nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the church in Wittenberg, which was a very common practice among the students there. If you wanted to debate something, if you wanted to argue something, you would nail your proposition onto the door at Wittenberg, and people would read it, and then they would gather there, and they would debate these different things. Well, his 95 theses all had to do with the selling of indulgences. Tetzel was going around selling indulgences to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica which is still standing today, which was built off the money that superstitious people gave because they were convinced that the money would buy them indulgence from the church, which was equitable to indulgence from God. Martin Luther said, uh-uh, and he nailed his 95 thesis to it. Let's debate this. Let's argue about this. Okay, that's 1517, October 31st. And so we typically mark that as the date of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now, like I just said, the Reformation was intended to be a reforming of the Catholic Church. Martin Luther eventually realized that they just were not going to change their ways. It was too successful. It was bringing them too much power over the people and governmental power. They were not going to change the way they were doing things just because one little monk said, you're doing it wrong. Then he realized he had to go outside of the Roman Catholic Church. It is Martin Luther who translated the Bible into the German language. Now, the German language at that point was mostly a spoken language. It was not primarily a written language. To this very day, German grammar is determined by the grammar that Martin Luther sort of invented as he was translating into German so that the German people could read their Bibles because he believed that if they read their Bible, they would see the difference between what the Bible said and what the church said. 
The church can't have that. So he went through all kinds of oppressions and the diet of worms and all of that. You can go read the rest of the history. All you need to know at this point is that was kind of the beginning of the Reformation. Now, when I say Protestant, that word Protestant comes to us from the word protest. The early reformers protested against the abuses of the Catholic Church, but they also protested against each other, which I find amusing, because now they're suddenly developing theology again. They're thinking independently. They're going back to the Bible, and they're reading, and they're, and they're saying, okay, the, the Roman Catholic dogma is not true, but what is true? And they actually ended up arguing with each other about various different things, but it was a healthy protest. It was a good protest as they continued to develop their theology. So today in our world, when we say Christian and Christian church, there are two big divisions. Those two big divisions are you are either Roman Catholic in the whole wide world. If you're Christian, you're either Roman Catholic Or you're Protestant, Protestant. If you are Protestant today and not Catholic, that is because of the Reformers. And so that is what we're going to be studying for the next several weeks. What was the theology of the Reformers? What was the theology that brought about the Protestant reformation of the church? away from Catholicism, to a more biblical theology. Now, as we're talking about these reformers, there are several names that we could mention, but perhaps the one we have to mention is John Calvin. Now, in this day and age, when you say Calvin and you say Calvinism, it causes people to run for the doors screaming, (laughs) mostly because They don't know really anything about John Calvin. They just know that he is widely bandied about on the internet and on social media. And if anybody wants to throw an epithet at a uh, person who believes the theology of the Protestant Reformation, they will say, you're a Calvinist. And that's supposed to be a bad word, but John Calvin lived from 1509 to 1564. He built on the foundations that were already being laid by Martin Luther. And the followers of the men such as John Calvin, there were men like Ulrich Zwingli, 1484 to 1531, and John Knox, who founded what became the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. He lived from 1513 to 1572. These men collectively become known as the reformers. There are others. There's John Huss. There are other names that I can name along the way. But just know that at this point in history that we're talking about right here, the 1500s, there was the Roman Catholic Church on one side. There was the Protestant reformers on the other side. And this is when theology became the serious conversation of the day. Now, since I just said the name Calvin and Calvinism, you need to know that here in America, after the founding of America, the first universities that were planted on American soil were planted by Calvinists. 
because Calvinists want, they adhere to education. They want people to think. They want people to understand because the more you think and understand, the more you'll think and understand your Bible. The better you can read, the better you can comprehend, the better you can use the logic of the Bible, the better off you're going to be. And in fact, there was a time in American education when you weren't considered fully educated if you were not conversant in Calvinism. Whether or not you agreed with it, you just had to know what it was. That's what a large place Calvinism plays in the history of America. The vast majority of the pilgrims who landed at Plymouth Rock were Calvinists. They were Congregationalists. They were raised on the theology of Calvin. Calvinism is interwoven in America so thick that human beings don't even understand it anymore. The vast majority of our jurisprudence, which is based in British jurisprudence, is based in Calvinistic thought. It's inescapable the influence that Calvin has had here in America. But now as the church has continued over the course of time, the church has continued to split off, and you have seen more of this Pelagian kind of thought rising up in the church, the emphasis on free will, the emphasis on your capability. And so today, within Protestantism, the same way that I said within Christianity, there's a division between Catholicism and Protestantism. Well, then within Protestantism now, there are these various different divisions that really break down into two categories. Either you believe that man is utterly sinful and God saves by grace, or you believe that human beings are capable of doing something that will satisfy or obligate God to save them. Okay, well, where did that theology begin? That takes us to Arminianism. Most of the time, when you hear people talk about Calvinism, they will talk about it in contrast to Arminianism. Are you bored yet? No. Okay, are we interested? Yes. Keep going? Okay. This is crazy. All right, your, your eyes lit up. I appreciate that, Sherry. Jacob Arminius. In Dutch, he would have been Jacob Harmensen. He was born on October 10th, 1560 in Oudwater, the Netherlands. And he died October 19th, 1609 in the town of Leiden. He was a theologian and a minister of the Dutch Reformed Church. And ultimately, he ended up opposing Calvin's teaching especially his teaching on predestination, and he developed a reaction to Calvin that is known to this day as Arminianism. Now, his father died when he was just an infant, and there was a fellow named Theodore Emilius who adopted the child and provided him for his schooling in the town of Altrek. On the death of Amelinius in 1575, a fellow named Rudolf Snellius, who was a professor at Marburg and a native of Oudwater, became the patron for Arminius's further education at the universities of Leiden and Basel and ultimately Geneva. Geneva is the home of Calvin. 
So after a brief stay at the University of Padua in Rome and in Geneva, Arminius then went to Amsterdam, where he was ordained in 1588. In 1603, Arminius was called to a theological professorship at Leiden, which he held until his death, actually. So these last six years of his life there at Leiden were dominated by theological controversy, in particular his disputes with Franciscus Gomerus. Now, hold on to that name. Some people pronounce it Gomerus or Gomarus. Hold on to that name. We'll get back to it. In the year that Jacob Arminius was born, in 1560, John Calvin was establishing the Genevan Academy to propagate his ideas and his theology. At the same time, Guido de Bray wrote the first edition of the Belgic Confession. You can go online and read the Belgic Confession. It's an early confession of the church written there in the 1500s, and you will notice as you read it that it's very Calvinistic. And as a consequence, most Reformed churches to this very day that is one of their primary go-to confessions. So by the time he was 14, by the time Arminius was 14, Holland's king was a fellow named William the Silent. I'm guessing he didn't say much. And he, by the way, was a Calvinist. But by the time that Arminius died... His anti-Calvinist theology was already spreading across all of Europe. That's how quickly it appealed to people. Just like I said before with the Pelagian theology, the reason that Arminius's theology appeals to people is because it appeals to their ego, to their ability, to their capability. Okay, a few quick dates. 1575, the University of Leiden is formed Arminius entered as a student. He would have been 15, I think, at the time. The municipal authorities of Amsterdam assumed the expense of his academic studies, in return for which he gave them his pledge that he would spend the remainder of his life to the service of the Church of Amsterdam. Notice, by the way, that it was municipal authorities, city authorities, government authorities, who paid for his religious education in exchange for which he agreed to serve the Church of Amsterdam, which is owned by the state. Get it? You see the combination of church and state happening here? Jump forward to 1581. Arminius is 21 years old, and he's studying at the Geneva Academy under Calvin's successor, a fellow named Theodore Beza. The merchant guild of the city of Amsterdam paid for it. Merchant Guild, the buyers and sellers of the city, paid for his education there at the Geneva Academy. But he began to question Calvinism. And when the Genevan authorities became angry at Arminius's defense of the French humanist Peter Ramus, Arminius left there and went to the University of Basel. When the storm against him eventually subsided, then he ends up going back to Geneva in 1586. He began his public ministry in 1588, 
For the next 14 years, he ministered in Amsterdam. And during that time, the Ecclesiastical Senate of Amsterdam made a fateful request when they asked Arminius to respond to the teaching of a man named Dorch Kornhart. Are you following all this so far? Kornhart rejected some of Calvin's doctrines on predestination, justification, and the punishment of heretics by death. Well, yes, we would agree with that one. Don't be punishing heretics by death. But Kornhart's argumentation had a tremendous amount of influence on Arminius, and even though he was there studying Calvinism at Geneva, he started believing that Kornhart was making the better argument. So he began studying the epistle of Romans through the lens, through the understanding of men's free will while he was an Amsterdam minister. And that really set Jacob Arminius firmly against Calvinism. Faith, he believed, was the reason that God elected people. In other words, since the Bible plainly and clearly says that God does elect people, you can't get away from the language of election in the Bible. If you read the Bible, you'll see election all over it, which is why the Catholic Church doesn't believe in election, because they don't read their Bible. He taught that God did not elect people for no reason within them for no merit within them. Instead, he postulated that human beings had the ability to dredge up their own faith, to encourage their own faith, and then God would elect you based on the faith he saw you having. So if you read the Bible and said, well, you know, that God guy, he seems like an an all right guy. He seems like a gentleman. He seems like an upstanding fellow. I can probably trust his word. I think I will trust my ever-living, never-dying soul to him. Once you made that decision of your own free will and your own ability, then God, in exchange for that faith, would choose you. So really, you choose you. You make the decision. You make the choice. You obligate God. Well, that's the theology that he came to believe. Near the end of 1602... There was a death in the professorship at the divinity of Leiden. And the curators there invited Arminius to come and fill that chair, which means that position, not just that seat. Amsterdam was reluctant to release him from his contract. And actually, as you go back and read his history, it looks like he was willing to stay if they had said that he had to stay. He understood his obligation to them. But in the end, the authorities agreed to the move and even guaranteed his wife a pension. His efforts to turn the students there at the divinity of Leiden, he wanted to turn his students from the scholastic studies to more biblical studies. And, of course, he wanted to bring them along in his theology. He wanted to use this as sort of his base of operation to start spreading what he believed. So as a result of him doing that, that led to accusations that he was introducing innovations, extra-biblical thinking to these theology students. 
And he would not publicly defend himself even until he died in 1608. He just believed what he believed. Okay. One of the things that he did before his death was that he called for a national synod. Because after all, you've got to get the okay from the state and the church in order for any theology to be accepted within the church. He wanted there to be a national synod to resolve the conflicts and to look really critically at two Calvinistic documents, the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Confession, both of which are very Calvinistic confessions. So he wanted to gather the church and state and argue about those confessions because they were very Calvinistic and he increasingly wasn't. So the synod finally did meet, but not until nine years after he died. So he applied for it, but he didn't partake in it. That was eight years after the remonstrance was issued. The remonstrance just means the written form, the request that a synod be formed in order to argue out these theological topics. That paper, that written decree, was known as a remonstrance with an A-N-C-E, because the people who actually presented the remonstrance to the synod were known as the remonstrants, with an A-N-T-S at the end. You have to hear the spelling in the way I attempt to pronounce those words. Okay, so here's what they want to argue about. Now we're getting into the thick of it. And we're done for the morning. My time is up. And now we're getting into the thick of it. But we're pretty much where I wanted to be because I'm going to leave you hanging over a cliff where you go, well, I got to go back next week. You can't leave me there. Arminian theology argued Christ died for everybody and individuals can resist the grace of God if they want to. And thereby, they can lose their salvation. So God can give you his Holy Spirit. God can save you. But then you can, of your own free will, decide against that or be so bad that you can apparently lose that sealing of the Holy Spirit. And you will ultimately be lost because you chose to resist grace. And you did all of that because you were the superior deciding factor in your salvation. Now, as some of you are shaking your head at me as I say that, because I know you're disagreeing with it, have any of you ever heard that in a church anywhere? Absolutely. That's still being taught in churches everywhere. In fact, earlier today I said, there's a Methodist church right there, a quasi-Baptist right there, a Catholic church over there. Keep going, you can find a Presbyterian church. They all believe that. They all these days follow after the teaching of Jacob Arminius and put the emphasis rather on God and his sovereign will. They put the emphasis on you and your supposed free will. To him, to Arminius, predestination just seemed like too harsh a position because it didn't provide a place for the exercise of human free will. And he emphasized human free will. Here, let me tell you this right up front. This may be shocking to some folks who don't know it. But free will, the term free will, the words free will, 
in any language you read it in, Greek, English, any translation, free will, the emphasis on free will and the word free will isn't in the Bible. It's especially not in the New Testament. The only place where you do find a English translation to the terms free will is in the Old Testament about a votive offering after you've already given all of your tithes and your sacrifices after you've already given all the required offerings if you wanted to give something above and beyond that that was referred to as a votive or free will offering but in the passages in the Bible that talk about how people are saved nothing about free will but Arminian felt that the doctrines that were being taught by the reformers after John Calvin's thinking that it was just too harsh because it didn't leave room for human free will and so Arminius came to insert a conditional election according to which God elects to eternal life all those who respond in faith to the offer of divine salvation his theological system became known as Arminianism and it is charged by his opponents with these five errors. Number one, that it denies original sin. Number two, that it denies justification by faith. Number three, that it denies absolute predestination. Number four, that it denies the grace of God to be irresistible. And number five, that it affirms that a believer may fall from grace. After his death then, some of his followers gave support to his views by signing this paper, this remonstrance, this theological document that was written in 1610 by, and I hope I'm saying this anywhere near right, Johannes Utenborgart. He actually was a minister from Utrecht. He's the one that wrote the remonstrance. The followers of Jacob Arminius all signed it. Remonstrant Arminianism was debated in 1618 until 1619 at the Synod of Dort, an assembly of the Dutch Reformed Church. And the Synod included delegates from Reformed churches in England and Germany and Switzerland, as well as delegates from the Dutch Church, all of whom were supporters of, I told you earlier, remember this name? They were all supporters of Gomaras who was supporting the Calvinistic side. Arminianism was discredited and condemned by the Synod. The Arminians that were present there were ultimately expelled, and many others suffered all kinds of persecution. Nevertheless, in 1629, the works of Arminius, called the Opera Theologica, or the Theological Works, were published for the first time in Leiden, and by 1630, the Remonstrant Brotherhood, that's the name of an organization, had achieved legal toleration of that theology from the government. It was finally recognized officially in the Netherlands in 1795. Arminianism influenced the development of Methodism in England, which then came to the United States, and to this very day, you can find Arminianism far and wide in the church world. We're going to stop right there. Next week, we're going to start talking about the theological ramifications of these two different theological systems. We're going to look at what the remonstrance had to say. What did it present? 
And we're going to look a little bit at the Synod of Dort and why it is that they developed what we know as the five points. I told you before, the five points did not just arise out of nowhere, out of whole cloth, just magically, here, five points. Actually, the five points that we adhere to today were each responses to the five points that were brought by the Romanstrants. So actually, the five points were a correction against the errors of Arminianism. So that was a brief overview of the last 2,000 years of the church. That's how we got where we are today and next week and for the next probably five weeks after that, if I do it right, we will look at the theology that grew out of the (coughs) Protestant Reformation, which is what makes us separate and distinct from the other churches in the area. Questions? I contend that history is fun. That if you don't know your history, you don't know who you are and how you got here. You will end up understanding much more about yourself when you understand your people. And you understand the decisions they made that ended up producing this where you are. Yes, ma'am. Is there a difference between Pelagianism and Arminianism? Or is Pelagianism just the overarching? There is a difference to be had. Arminianism has some overlap with Calvinism because, as I was pointing out in that history, Jacob Arminius was taught at Calvin's school. So there's a lot of overlap between the two of them, whereas Pelagianism developed much earlier in time and didn't have that Calvinistic base (coughs) to start from. So there are theological nitpicky points there, but they are different even though the places where they unite is in man's free will. Is that, it always comes down to that. It always comes down to man's free will. Right. Yeah. Is that age of accountability also Pelagian? Or? The age of accountability is a whole different thing that developed over time. Do you know what the age of accountability is? It's, your it's 27. That's it. <laughs> No, that's the belief that when a person becomes 12 or 13, that's when you become accountable for your sins, that the sins that you committed before that, you were a child and you didn't know better. And so since you didn't know better, you can't be held accountable for it, which seems to me, if the age of accountability, since you brought it up, if the age of accountability is true, then abortion is the most effective way of sending people to heaven that ever existed. It's merciful because you've killed them before they're responsible. They go to heaven in their innocence. What a great evangelistic tool. A lot of 11th birthdays got really depressing. Right, exactly. Well, you know, another year and, well, we're going to have to get rid of you. And so, so yeah, the age of accountability. And the only reason I pointed out the connection between the age and and abortion was to say that's how wrong the age of accountability is. It's also wrong because the Bible says that babies come out of the womb speaking lies. They're sinners in their mother's wombs. So, wrong. Anything else? You're all afraid to ask a question now because my answers become so elongated. I want to sing. I want the rest of you to sing with me. Turn... T-
Yay! Turn to 483 in your hymnal. We're going to sing, Oh, How I Love Jesus. You can go through just about any hymnal and find all kinds of hymns talking about I do this and I do that and etc. I is used a lot in this hymn, but it ends up in the right place. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.